This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from Washington, sitting in for Josh King, here's Matt Bennett. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. I'm Matt Bennett. My two guests today have fascinating and very different takes on things that are driving the headlines. One focused on President Obama and American politics. The other an expert on the ever-shifting and very complicated politics of the Middle East. First is Michael Shear. He's a White House correspondent for the New York Times. He joined the Times in September of 2010 after making the short hop over from the Washington Post, where he was covering the White House, and before that, the Republican side of the 2008 presidential election. Mike spent five years covering Virginia politics, including a big polyoptical moment, then Senator George Allen's infamous Makaka moment. After we talk to Mike, we're going to change gears and check out the shifting sands of the Middle East with Stephen Grant. Steve is the author of a new book, Understanding Tahrir Square, What Transitions Elsewhere Can Teach Us About the Prospects for Arab Democracy. Steve's a non-resident senior fellow at the Saban Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Project on U.S. Relations with the Islamic World. And good luck putting that on a business card. Uh, That's a project that he directed for many years. Before Brookings, he was the director of Middle East Strategy Group at the Aspen Institute. And prior to that, he was an adjunct professor at the Syracuse University Maxwell School, which, in the view of this orange fan, is his most impressive credential of all. Uh, He's got a Ph.D., and he has held millions of impressive jobs on the Hill and think tanks all over the place. And he truly is one of the leading scholars in the United States who is studying the Arab world. After we hear from Steve, we have a special guest appearance by this show's founder and guiding light, Josh King, who will be here to make a special announcement about the future of this show. But first, let's get right to the American politics of the moment with Mike Shear. Mike, welcome to Polyoptics. Happy to be here. Your timing for coming on this show is perfect because the polyoptical conversation has really broken out in Washington the last couple of days with the president right at the center of it. Let's listen to the president's comments about this very issue just yesterday. There's nothing that is taking place down there that I am not intimately aware of and briefed on. Um, This isn't theater. This is a problem. Uh, I'm not interested in uh, uh, photo ops. I'm interested in solving a problem. Uh, And uh, those who say I should visit the border, uh, when you ask them what should we be doing, uh, they're giving us suggestions that are embodied in legislation that I've already sent to Congress. And let's just listen briefly to a response from John Cornyn, a Republican senator from Texas. Why he is so stubborn and hard-headed that he refuses to visit the Rio Grande Valley and witness this ongoing humanitarian crisis with his own eyes really is mystifying. The crisis, of course, is uh, the children, uh, Central American children coming over the border unaccompanied. Mike Shear, you've been thinking and writing and talking about this the last few days. What do you think? Well, so first off, I, I come from the perspective of whenever 
a major politician says that they're not concerned about optics and theater and all of that, it just makes me chuckle. Um, and especially coming from the president of the United States and this president of the United States, I saw a tweet that somebody uh, put out today of the picture of him accepting uh, the nomination. I think it was in the Grant Park with the with the big, you know, it was a, it was an incredible show, right? With the big uh, columns right, in Denver, and the, with the, in Denver, with the Greek, it was columns, Denver yeah. with the Greek columns and the pictures of him, like you know, hundred feet tall. I mean, this is a guy that understands optics better than anybody else. So, but but having said that, I think he, uh, you know, the White House staff is um, frustrated a little bit with with the Republicans who they see as. You know, seizing on uh, this trip, this supposed trip to the border, uh, for reasons that don't have a whole lot to do, as the president seemed to say, with actually getting something done and confronting this what is clearly a serious problem, a substantive problem. Uh, and I think they would say, in talking to them earlier today, if these folks were really interested in confronting the problem, they would not so much be calling about a trip to the border and would instead be holding hearings that have still, I think, in the House yet to even be scheduled on the the money and the resources and the legal changes that the administration's been asking for. Sure, and fair enough uh, to just give them their point on the substance versus the optics. But the but optics do matter. Of course, Joe Scarborough has been saying that this is Obama's Katrina movement. Um, of course, referring to President Bush flying over New Orleans and looking down from 30,000 feet. Is that how it feels in the White House press room? Does it feel like a really serious problem or kind of a passing kerfuffle? I think more the latter in terms of the question of whether or not he he visits the border right. feels a little bit more like a passing you know moment that that of course gets a lot of attention but probably will not be the thing that's dominating conversation a week from now um I think it was it was uh, exacerbated by the fact that his trip happened to be to Texas right if he had been traveling to Connecticut and you know wherever today it wouldn't have it wouldn't have seemed like such a big issue that he wasn't traveling to the border i think that one of the things i mean on on the katrina comparison one of the things the white house is probably thinking was trying to avoid exactly that kind of moment right to, to avoid uh, a moment where you get down to the border and somehow there's some jarring image of the of the sort of the entourage, which you know well, you've been in them, the the big entourage and the and coming down and somehow feeling not like he's helping, but rather he's kind of hurting or intruding or somehow not, um, you know, not kind of in sync with what's really going on down there. That's what I think, at least from an image perspective and an optics perspective, that's probably what they were one of the things they were concerned about. Uh, you know, better to avoid that whole mess. Right, without question. And, and Josh King, the uh, show's founder and I spent a lot of time thinking about, are we going to be more of a problem uh, or an asset? You know, if you take the president or the vice president or someone down there, you just get in the way a lot and uh, and you can be accused of, of grandstanding. The problem, of course, as you point out, is he's in Texas and he's in Texas for money. He's down there <laughs> fundraising and, and, you know, he's not very far away. So it is tough. Let me ask you this about the White House. Do you feel like they were they could have changed gears i mean we all know that you can throw on trips pretty quick did you feel like they're kind of digging in because they didn't want to be pushed around by republicans or they really had a substantive and philosophical objection to the president going down there my guess is both right i, I think they probably um 
I, I think they could probably sit here with a straight face and talk about their substantive philosophical objection to, you know, this is not going to help us solve the problem. And so, you know, why should we do it? But I also, this is a White House, um, maybe all White Houses, but I, I, you know, we're in this one. So this White House uh, is one that doesn't like to be pushed around and doesn't like to feel like it, it, it prides itself, put it this way, it prides itself. The people in that building pride themselves on um, uh, not being overly reactive and sticking to the, you know, sticking to the plan. Dennis McDonough especially is a right. very sort of processy kind of guy and he lays out his, you know, six steps that he wants to do to attack a problem and you know, he doesn't like to alter that, right? And so I think they probably just also dug in a bit. Right. You're talking about White House Chief of Staff, Dennis McDonough. Um, also, this kind of goes back a long way, right? The the no drama Obama idea goes back to the campaign where uh, they used to derisively talk about the Washington bedwetters who were wanting them to change gears, and they they had it under control. And, and they, they were right in 2008 and in 2012 when Democrats got nervous it was very clear that they knew what they were doing they stayed on track and they won is that how they run the White House too do you think <laughs> they try I think it's as you have have certainly experienced um, both the campaign setting and the White House setting they're very different and one of the things about a campaign while there are moments that you that of unexpected drama that that come at you if you're in a campaign there's a lot more control that a campaign has over the events that are swirling around it and, um, you know, a lot more freedom to make decisions that are 100 uh, percent focused around that, around your campaign and what you're trying to accomplish. A White House is a whole lot different and events, dr- events pummel a White House from in one direction or another that are completely out of their control. We obviously see that a lot on the foreign policy side. Um, but even on the domestic side, I mean, here here you have a president who um, a couple of weeks ago sort of came out to the Rose Garden and talked about how he was done with uh, doing a immigration legislation. He was going to, you know, John Boehner had said that, the Speaker of the House, John Boehner, had said that's done. We're going to go ahead and do executive actions. And who could have imagined that, like, a new immigration crisis was going to be, you know, born in the next, you know, days, hours. And so there's a lot that they can control and a lot that they can't. We're talking to Mike Shear, White House correspondent for The New York Times on Polyoptics, POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124. I'm Matt Bennett. Mike, another recent charge by Republicans is that this president is running what they call an imperial presidency. And someone you covered uh, weighed in on that recently. Let's take a listen to that. A great awakening is due in this country, and this is the message that will be sent to our president, that he is not an imperial president, and lawlessness will not be accepted by the American people. That's not what he was elected to do, was to create his own laws as he goes along. I think it's time, you know, a a little less talk, a lot more action. So what is a former governor, if you can use the term for somebody who served for two and a half years, Governor Palin talking about there in the imperial presidency? Well, I think what the actions that she's talking about, I think, um, have to do with immigration, what we were just talking about, some of the the uh, uh, steps that, that the president took to block deportation for certain immigrants that were here in the country illegally. I think she's t- probably talking about Affordable Care Act and things, changes that the president made to timing of when the law went into effect and what pieces of the law actually went into effect when. Um, you know, the, those are major things. I'm sure there's others that they that that she and other Republicans would point to as evidence of uh, you know, the president's 
desire to implement his own policies, you know, regardless of what the Congress thinks, they're aided a little bit by the president's own rhetoric in which um, in frustration over the last year and a half or two, the president has repeatedly said, look, if Congress doesn't act, if the the Republicans block my agenda, I'm going to act where I can. And, you know, the president's rhetoric is intended to have an asterisk by it that says, wherever I can legally, but you don't say that in a speech. You don't say that at a Democratic fundraiser. And so it the White House leaves that to be assumed and the Republicans leave that to be, you know, assumed that he's not going to do anything legally and that he's going beyond his powers and that he's going around the Constitution. And for for the Republicans, it's a really good way. It's it's like a dog whistle to the to the right wing to say, man, this president is 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 undermining the Constitution of the United States of America. It whips up that that part of their base that is, uh, uh, you know, that is always looking for ways to hit the president. And they got a big boost lately uh, in a string of decisions by the Supreme Court, right? Uh, a couple of which were unanimous, in, including uh, two justices appointed by this president, saying that he had overstepped his authority in a few important ways. Um, what ha- what kind of impact has that had, the, the NLRB decision about uh, appointing uh, folks to the Labor Board and, and the others? What do you th- what are White House aides saying about that? And what do you think that's going to mean for his ability to act without Congress going forward? I, I think what it I think what it means is that uh, the president will um, uh, will have an opportunity. The president and his allies will have an opportunity in the elections to try to make the case that the um, uh, that the uh, uh, Supreme Court and the makeup of the Supreme Court is a key and crucial part of the election um, in in the fall, the midterm elections. If the Republicans can gain control of the Senate, that's going to uh, potentially affect the president's ability to make changes on, at the Supreme Court if, if, if such a change were to come about. And I think that's going to be the real impact more so than the legal impact. My sense from some of those cases was that uh, the president's ability to to shape the nominees that he wants on something like the NLRB are somewhat constrained by the decision, but not uh, the legal experts I talked to said this isn't a sea change in the way it 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 will probably play out, especially since there are some uh, uh, agreements in place in the legislature at the moment, in the Congress at the moment, that say we we'll only need 50 votes, 51 votes anyway. And so I'm not sure the impact is actually the substantive impact. I think it's more the politics. And uh, probably the biggest of those cases that he lost, not unanimously, it was a split decision, was the Hobby Lobby case, mm-hmm. uh, where the court struck down uh, some of the Obama plan to ensure that employers covered most forms of birth control. How did the White House react to that decision in particular, both publicly and privately? Well, I think it was a big disappointment. I think, again, in the grand scheme of the Affordable Care Act, this piece of it was was relatively narrow. Unlike the first Supreme Court case on the Affordable Care Act, which really... Uh, you know, people don't focus on it much, but the but the piece that the Supreme Court knocked out of the Affordable Care Act in that is the requirement that states must um, expand Medicaid 
the health coverage for the poor. And so that was actually a huge chunk of the Affordable Care Act that um, you see playing out over over states now, because there's now, of course, states that aren't are choosing not to expand Medicaid. And so there's millions of people potentially that would have been covered by the Affordable Care Act that aren't. That was a big deal. In this case, the Hobby Lobby case, it's a real small part of it from a numerical standpoint, but it it goes to the heart of the argument that the Democrats, the disagreement between Democrats and Republican over, over you know, the philosophy of can government you know, can government require this kind of health care from everybody or not? And I do think that it will become, the Democrats I talked to all said that, especially on this one, they think it'll become a rallying cry in this election, but also in 2016, a way of po- painting the Republicans as not caring about women's health issues. Right. Democrats in Congress think they can make lemonade out of these lemons uh, in two ways. One is they think they might be able to use it in the election. The other is they're now pushing a bill to overturn it. Um, Let's listen to Senator Patty Murray on MSNBC's Hardball. I think women across the country and men are outraged by a decision by five Supreme Court justices that all of a sudden says your boss has an opportunity to decide for you what your health care choices are. That outrage is being uh, transmitted to everyone and I think we have a very good chance of uh, rewriting the law so that the justices uh, can't take away women's uh, ability to make their own health care choices. Uh, perhaps we should put air quotes around very good chance of this becoming law. Uh, Congress seems unable to agree on whether the sky is blue lately. Why is Patty Murray and why are the Democrats doing this? Look, this is no different. This is no different than than uh, what's happened over the last several years. The Senate, which is controlled by Democrats, when they have an issue that they think is a good issue, they're going to try to pass it in the Senate. They know it's going to die in the House. There's virtually zero. Uh, hope that a that a John Boehner controlled Republican controlled House is going to pass this. Uh, Democrats think it's a good it's a good issue. It puts the Republicans on def- on the defense. It sets up another discussion for uh, for election year and beyond. Um, I, I love though to talk about optics since that's the show. Um, th- the word that comes out of her that came out of her mouth right at the top was the word boss. Right, and it really struck me the the day that the Hobby Lobby case came down, and I was in a briefing with Josh Ernest, the new press secretary at the White House. He must have said the word "boss" and "bosses" like twenty times. And when you think about it, it's a really loaded word, right? From an optics standpoint, he he didn't say employer, he didn't say your the people that you work for, right? It's boss, and it sort of like conjures up this image of the big mean male Man, male probably boss, not thinking right? marissa mayor right so, yeah. exactly and so i do think that there's been a you know a concerted effort on the part of the democrats the president that they his allies to to sort of cast this in a way that is most um uh you know most favorable to them and and calls into this you know evokes these images these optics of uh women who are being told by men how to how to deal with their own health care issues and uh, of course as you know going back several cycles now uh, republican candidates in senate races have completely bollocks themselves up when they started talking about issues related to women yeah. uh, men men running for for senate talking about women uh particularly with rape and with uh abortion and and uh with contraception it's very tough issue for republicans to get right and Believe me, that that's exactly what the Democrats are, you know, hoping. They're putting, you know, a bet down on, on the issue and hoping that that there will be at least a few Republicans who will get all caught up in it again. Uh, 
I don't want to ask you about Hillary Clinton because you're going to say the same thing everybody says, which I don't know, she's going to run. Uh, but let's talk about Republicans. You covered them in 2008. What's your sense of where they're trending in terms of uh, finding a nominee? Do you think it's going to be a wide open race with a huge field or narrow? What's your guess there? So I'll guess, but I think you might actually have some sources in Clinton world, right? Uh, perhaps, but to... <laughs> uh, I won't turn the tables. Um, I, look, I think I think the most surprising thing to many people uh, in pundit world about the Republicans is probably, this is my guess, is probably going to be the extent to which Chris Christie really has some ability to at least make a run for it, despite all of the mess that he's in up in New New Jersey. I mean, most people I talk to, most of my colleagues think he's done. I talked to a a very senior person uh, in the Senate uh, the other day uh, who said he thinks he's finished. Um, but I, I'm not so sure. I mean, I, I wonder whether uh, when, you know, you, a year from now, assuming that he hasn't been indicted and he hasn't been, you know, there haven't been other things that have sort of directly tied him to some of the illegal stuff that, that looks like went on there. Uh, if he gets into the living rooms in Iowa and the, you know, gun shops in New Hampshire and starts going down to South Carolina, whether the people in those, the the Republican primary voters in those places, um, do they really care about a bridge in New Jersey? I don't know. And I think uh, he's got a lot of other problems politically. He's got all, I mean, even before the bridge came along, he's got all sorts of issues with, you know, whether his ideology, his particular brand of Republicanism fits with some of these more conservative uh, primary voters. But I I would not be surprised if a year from now we're talking about a serious run for the presidency uh, being launched by Chris Christie, despite everything that's going on. Uh, my next guest is Steve Grant. He's an Arab expert. We're going to be talking about that part of the world. Let me get you, uh, before we close, just to talk a little bit about how the many unfolding crises, not only in Ukraine, but in all over the Arab world, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, etc. How is that affecting this White House? Um, do you feel like they are being controlled by these events, and and um, what has been their more kind of private response to all these problems? So I had a conversation with a senior White House person about a week ago about this very topic um, and asked the question, essentially the way you asked it, aren't you guys being just buffeted around and sort of knocked around by all of these world events and cited the ones that you cited and some others? His answer was uh, that that they on on each of these things they have a a plan to execute um in terms of what they're trying to the substance of what they're trying to accomplish whether that be in Syria where they uh were trying to uh get rid of uh get rid of the the chemical weapons whether that be in Ukraine in terms of holding off uh, Putin from making any more aggressive new moves uh and in in Iraq trying to push back and hold back the uh, ISIS fighters without getting too deeply enmeshed in a war there. And his argument was, look, we, you know, it may not it may not seem to people, but it's a kind of slow, steady thing. And we're we're it's actually working. Syria, he argued, is actually getting better uh, from the perspective of the chemical weapons, which are actually being destroyed. And Putin has stopped and hasn't gone any further than where he went. And so, you know, he was sort of laying out the case that actually it's, you know, we are more in control than it may seem. I think that's probably the best case, like that's the best spin on it from 
you know, the, the other way to look at it, though, is that, you know, even the there even the solutions that they've they've come to the par, sort of partial solutions in each of these places are like the worst of or maybe the best of a lot of bad outcomes right i mean syria the war is still the civil war is still raging and maybe you've gotten rid of the chemical weapons but you certainly haven't you know done anything in the last couple of years to sort of turn that war around and ukraine you know russia still has crimea and there's still a lot of tension there and iraq is is a real problem so I think you do have the sense of an administration that is, um, uh, you know, maybe thinking that they're executing their plan, but that that they're still being forced to deal with a lot of situations that, frankly, uh, they never thought that if you'd asked them a year ago, they never thought they'd be dealing with. Sure. And the president famously said that he likes to, and these types of things, hit singles and doubles. And as a Nats fan, you know that uh, you hit singles and doubles. Sometimes you end up winning and sometimes you don't. Mike Shear with the New York Times, thank you so much for coming on Polyoptics. Happy to do it. And we're back with Polyoptics on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. I'm Matt Bennett. And as promised at the top of the hour, we're going to shift gears a bit here and talk about the other side of some of those foreign policy issues with Steve Grant. Steve, welcome to Polyoptics. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. Steve, uh, it's not a secret. The Middle East seems to be sort of blowing up at the moment. You've got fighting in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. You've got um, Syria spilling over its borders. You've got ISIS and a caliphate in Iraq. You've got the military back in charge in Egypt. You've got Libya backsliding. You've even got bickering inside the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia. What is going on over there? <laughs> good, good question. Matt, I mean, this is indeed a difficult and dangerous moment in the Middle East where I think U.S. leadership is, is really cr- critical. You have basically an old order, old order that's crumbling. Uh, the authoritarian regimes that ruled the region for a long time are no longer deemed tenable to their populations. And so there's no returning to the status quo ante. But at the same time, nothing new has been constructed in its place. And Citizens of the region are frustrated, they're humiliated, and you know in politics what a volatile mix that can be. Um, They want governments that are not corrupt, that are accountable to their people, that meet basic needs, that uh, respect the dignity of the individual. But they're trying to figure out how to get there. And, you know, in one camp, you have many who look to democracy as the answer still. Um, and are still pushing for peaceful means to establish a new order in the region. You have a smaller minority, and you mentioned ISIS, that think that change can only be achieved through force and you know, hope for some return to an imagined past of strict Islamic rule. And right now, the men of violence are sort of holding sway, even though I think numerically they're a pretty small percentage of the population. And and when violence is uh, and, and instability is dominant, it makes it very difficult to, to countenance things like democracy. Right. And, and, of course, violence is dictating American policy in the region at the moment because Absolutely. you've got this horrific civil war in Syria that has now become really a war that's, that's into Iraq. You've got fighting, as I said, in, in Israel and Gaza. And, uh, and you've got some degree of violence continuing in places like Egypt. 
Um, what does this all mean for U.S. policy? I know there's no easy answer to that, but how should Americans think about the politics of the Middle East in the context of what looked like an Arab Spring but has become sort of an Arab winter? Right. Well, I think priority number one needs to be to help tamp down the violence in the region and the political tension. You, As I said before, you can't have democracy when there's tremendous insecurity. People begin to fall back on sort of primordial identities and politics becomes very, very zero sum. So you got to tamp down the violence. And the second thing you need to do is, is to try to manage political change in the region in a thoughtful way. I mean, if you think back to America's great moments on the world stage, whether it's the Marshall Plan uh, after 1989 with the dissolution of, of the Eastern Bloc after the Cold War, even the war in Bosnia, you know, policymakers at that time tried to look over the horizon and imagine what positive political change could look like, and then tried to devise institutions or mechanisms to, to get us there. And I, I think that kind of vision is really needed now. Um, I think the president rightly senses the national mood, which is that there's this fatigue after two wars in, in the region, and there's no desire among the American public to put boots on the ground. But there's a lot of other things that you can do. Now, of course, it's hard to look over the horizon when, when you stick your head up above the parapet, someone is shooting at you. <laughs> yeah, and, and so the things that the, the White House and American policymakers are dealing with right now uh, are kind of immediate exigent problems like the fighting in Iraq and Syria and Israel. Um, and this has brought on all kinds of strange uh, political dilemmas. Uh, one irony of the moment is that the ISIS uprising in Iraq might be forcing the United States into a kind of a strange friendship dance with Iran. Uh, John Stewart unpacked that question in his own inimitable style just the other night. Let's listen to that. Iran's leaders have said they are willing to work with the United States, the great Satan in their view, in order to fight ISIS. What? <laughs> you work with us, Satan? <laughs> You would do this? I, I never thought we'd get back together, but if you're willing to give it a shot. Steve Grand, all kidding aside, what is the U.S. to make of our relationship with Iran in a moment where we're trying to negotiate for the end of their nuclear program, where they are viewed as by the Israelis as an existential threat, and they're still kind of declared enemy of us in the West? What are we supposed to do with the Iranians at this point? Well... Politics makes for strange bedfellows, and that's true overseas as much as it is, is at home. You know, I, I think we there's a lot we could talk about and we need to talk about with the Iranians, and we're at a moment where we need to be talking to everyone, and we need to be figuring out how we deal with the threat of ISIS, um, which, you know, in many ways, if, if they were able to maintain uh, their hold on large parts of Iraq— um, which I'm, I'm not sure is, is, is feasible, but if they were, you know, we're sort of back to the pre-9-11 era where you have a, a terrorist state that's, that's harboring um, people bent on, on doing bad things to the United States, and, and we, can't, we can't tolerate that. Um, so what can we do short of boots on the ground to prevent that situation from recurring? 
We're talking with Steve Grand on Polyoptics on POTUS, Sirius XM, Channel 124. I'm Matt Bennett. The book is uh, Understanding Tahrir Square. Let's turn now to kind of the the focus of your book and and your work uh, in the last few years, at least, which is Egypt. I think a lot of Americans are pretty confused about how they should think about Egypt. There was what looked to be a democratic uh, revolution there in Tahrir Square, followed by the election of the Muslim Brotherhood, followed by a military coup. What are we to make of the parties in Egypt and the state of its fragile uh, semi-democracy? Right. Well, it is a very complex situation. Um, three times, the remarkably, Egyptian the Egyptian public has gone out to the streets, and three times they've gotten something different than what they went out in the streets to demand. In the first case, they went out against Mubarak, and they got the SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces Interim Government, uh, which ruled immediately after Mubarak. They went out because they didn't like the way the SCAF was, was governing, and they got in its place uh, a democratically elected Muslim Brotherhood-led government. They went out a third time against that government because they felt like it was incompetent and had, had violated the constitutional r- rules of the game along the way. And in, they got the military uh, back in, in power. Um, you know, this government is elected, so to speak, but it, it is really a military government. Uh, I think... What is remarkable to me as someone who's followed Egypt for quite some time is just the level of civic energy and the determination of so many Egyptians to try to find a better path. And I think it's going to take some time to get there, to figure out how do you translate this tremendous civic energy that's there into meaningful political change. Um, and having surveyed democratizations in other parts of the world for the book, it's not unusual to see these kinds of twists and turns, these dramatic advances and then disappointing reversals along the way. And in Egypt, it seems to me we've had like three U-turns, you know. Uh, and is that, have we seen that other places that have emerged eventually into some sort of democracy? Or is that just too extreme and are they now kind of back on the Mubarak path for a while, do you think? Well, I think there is some a good bit of public support for this military regime, military-led regime. Um, I don't think it will last forever. Um, I th- think that uh, that in the end, people will find it as repressive as some of the military governments that preceded it and now know that there's a way to oppose that kind of regime. Um, but it may take a while. And, um, you know, democracy is a learning process. And one of the things that you learn from these kinds of failures is what you need to do next. And, and that kind of political learning is really, really important. So um, we'll see what the next chapter brings for Egypt. But I don't think the the military will be able to install a Mubarak-style regime uh, this time around. Let's talk about how change happens in that part of the world and in emerging democracies generally. You write in the book not only about the Arab world, but about uh, Eastern Europe, as you noted. Uh, One thing I was struck by was when you had the Green Revolution uh, or the Green Uprising in Iran several years ago. They came into the streets in the biggest city. It was televised, presumably tweeted about if Twitter was around then. Um, And yet it didn't seem to, it didn't succeed. It didn't uh, depose the leadership. And it 
it's not clear to me that it took in the countryside. Why was it different in Egypt when they came into Tahrir Square? Was there something about the moment, or how was it different? Well, it certainly came as a huge surprise to the regime. It was not expected. Um, But I think you really had all segments of society come out in Egypt, from intellectuals to workers, from urban professionals to the rural farmers. Um, And it was that kind of conservative rural group that that the Green Movement never quite was able to bring onto its side. In Iran. In Iran. Right. 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 And I I think that usually when these types of popular uprisings succeed, it's because all segments of society come out and governments just feel like, you know, they can't make war with an entire society. Are there lessons for the Arab world from Eastern Europe that you write about in your book? What works... In, in kind of emerging democracies, and what really doesn't work? Are there things that the Arabs should really be trying to do if they're civil society proponents? Well, you know, this is going to be a long struggle. And in the countries I looked at, where countries got to liberal democracy, which is, I think, what you're really after, it was because you saw emerge a real political constituency for democracy, people who are willing to not only take to the streets, but petition, fight, stand up to their regime um, until politicians eventually abided by these new democratic rules of the game. And that takes a long struggle. It involves um, heavy engagement from all of society um, to, to ensure that politicians understand that there's a price to pay if they violate the constitutional rules of the game. Too often we get beautifully written constitutions, but governments that just ignore them. And that's the real challenge. My guest is Steve Grand. He's the author of Understanding Tahrir Square, What Transitions Elsewhere Can Teach Us About the Prospects for Arab Democracy. Steve, what do you expect to happen? We've talked a little bit about what should happen, what lessons uh, the Arab world could draw from other emerging democracies. What do you think is going to happen now with a region that is um, not only embroiled in violence in certain parts, but has slipped back to military dictatorship in other parts? What do you think the next year, two years, five years looks like? Well, it's a very open moment, and I think a lot depends on the U.S. and U.S. policy. There is no other superpower that can step up and provide the public good of security. And we need to help sort of tamp down the violence in the region. If we don't, we're going to see more of what we've seen in Syria over the last couple years, which is the big regional players, namely Iran and Saudi Arabia, are going to fulfill that vacuum themselves and, and pursue their own interests. And, and that will be messy. Um, so American engagement is, is critical. If we can tamp down the violence, I think that there are these political constituencies emerging in some countries of the region um, for democracy. Um, you see it now in Tunisia. I think it's possible over time in Egypt. And, and then we'll see beyond. It's not, it's not going to, not every country is going to make it. But if you can get over some of the sectarian violence that is really not a product of democracy, it's a product of what came before, these regimes that were toxic in the kinds of messages that they sent out to their citizens, if you can get past that, um, I think there's a good, there are good prospects for democracy. Now, of course, the most powerful medium in politics is radio, specifically satellite radio. <laughs> Absolutely. But if you stipulate to that, um, social media has played a role to some extent in some of these uh, revolutions and, and uprisings. What does that look like? And how 
can you uh, draw a line back to what was going on in the 90s in Eastern Europe? What were they doing when, when they didn't have the internet, they didn't have social media that, that's been replaced today? Sure. So I lived in Prague right after the Velvet Revolution. And I don't know if you remember the mimeograph. I don't know if any of our listeners re remember the mimeograph, but it was sort of an early version of the copy machine, right? So it, during the Velvet Revolution in 1989 in Czechoslovakia, students took their little leaflets and ran them on a mimeograph. Then those flyers, they put volunteers on trains, and they went to different cities and distributed wow. by hand. Their revolution took 10 days. The one in Egypt took 18 with social media. Um, so that just gives you a little bit of perspective that this is possible without social media and Twitter. I do think it's helpful, though, in sort of changing attitudes. Um, the fact that these regimes no longer have a monopoly of information because of the internet and because of satellite television and satellite radio it is critically important. Suddenly people are able to compare their lot with that of other societies. And I think politically that's really, really important. Um, the internet can be really helpful in coordinating, in crowd building. You're, you're a former advanced person. You I know am. You know that it's a lot easier to put something up on, on Facebook than it is to go around and distribute flyers. I know that only in theory, since in my day we only had the flyers. But <laughs> kids today, they're so lazy, they just put it up on the internet and the crowds just show up. So it, it's really easy to coordinate big, spontaneous civic action. What's harder to, to do is to coordinate that action, right? Because who speaks for that crowd? What's their agenda? Who's truly representative mm. of them? Um, and I think that sort of gets to the problem Egypt has right now, right? This tremendous spontaneous civic energy, but a lack of leaders who are sort of channeling it in ways that affect politics in a meaningful way. I, I try to get each of my guests when we close to end with some sort of prediction. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. Where do you think we are most likely to see democracy take root in this region you know, in the near, medium, or long-term future? So it's where you're going to see political constituencies for democracy emerge, which is in countries that have higher, more highly educated citizens and that people who are more exposed to the world. So obviously Tunisia. Egypt might fit in that camp. Libya, maybe over time, highly educated, not so exposed to the world before. Um, Yemen seems a little harder, um, and you know, we could go on from there. Mm. Uh, if, if you can tamp down the violence in Syria, uh, it's a difficult thing, but but anything's possible. Um, if you think back to Bosnia, where the international community played a very proactive role in tamping down violence. Thank you very much, Steve Grant. He's the author of a terrific new book, Understanding Tahrir Square, What Transitions Elsewhere Can Teach Us About the Prospects for Arab Democracy. You can get it all over the place on the Internet, not on satellite radio, but almost everywhere else. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Thanks, Matt. A pleasure. History in the making. This is POTUS. POTUS, Sirius XM Polyoptics on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, POTUS Channel. I'm Matt Bennett. As promised at the top of the hour, we are joined by the show's founder, guiding light, 
normal host, Josh King. Josh, it's a very polyoptical week, as we discussed with Mike Shear. Welcome to your show. Matt, thanks. After 159 episodes to be in the New York studio in front of the microphone, but to sort of being on the other side of the uh, guest host uh, dynamic, it's very interesting. Uh, what a week to to sort of sp- uh, spring some very interesting and, and in some ways poignant news in our listeners when President Obama is on a scheduled trip to Texas, Matt, how many fundraisers between Denver and Austin to pick up the checks for the DNC and other causes and and the border erupts. And, and here in this age of optics come the calls, probably sprung from some, you know, Republican message machine to say, let's figure out how we can, you know, put the needle on Obama as as deep as possible. He should come to the border. Well, you know, he might should go to the border. I, I'm reminded, I actually, a you know, quick Google pulls up a Francis X. Klein's story from August 13th, 1983 in the New York Times. Reagan offers plan for help on border and draws rebuke. Dateline El Paso. President Reagan said today that a new interagency action group would assist economically depressed American communities along the Mexican border. The program was immediately denounced as an empty gesture by Governor Mark White of Texas. You remember him, Matt? I do indeed. Who said it was, quote, like the emperors of Rome handing out aspirin to the Christians after they'd been mauled by the lions. Did they have aspirin? I mean, you know, they don't make them like Mark White anymore, do they, Matt? (laughs) They do not. And, of course, you know, uh, they would have mauled him like a lion had he gone to the border for uh, meaningless photo ops, so he couldn't win. Well, that's the point, too. And, I mean, let's put some money on how many days it actually takes President Obama to actually go to the border. He does things that are important, but he doesn't like to be bullied to do it, does he? Right, exactly. And, uh, yeah, this is a guy that just doesn't get pushed around and and a White House that has that attitude, too. There's an interesting uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal today online uh, you know, can you tell uh, the source of the White House photos? Four, five different um, pictures of Governor Perry and President Obama meeting at the airport headed to Marine One. Pick the one that was shot by Pete Sousa and the four others that were shot by news organizations. So optics is so much a part of our life every day. And certainly it has been for the last three and a half years that we've done this show and never more so than this week in this particularly incendiary issue of what happens with immigration at our border. Exactly. And I I must say that, Josh, uh, you and your your original co-host, Adam Bellmer, um, managed to pull off a really compelling show about optics on the radio. And that is not easy to do. Uh, So how did you do it? Well, we we did sort of back our way into it. And I give huge credit to Adam. In the summer of 2009, I started to write about optics and put it on a new website called Polyoptics. And Adam had worked, you know, I had worked in the Clinton administration with you as the director of production and presidential events. And Adam worked in the uh, George W. Bush White House in a similar capacity, actually the exact same role. We found each other after after that series of, of uh, posts went online at polyoptics.com. And I think Adam had a relationship at the time with SiriusXM. And we said, well, why don't we talk about 
theater of politics and stagecraft on the radio. And, you know, luckily enough, uh, we found ourselves in the studio in Washington and New York, and we were, we were sort of put into these great and capable hands uh, by a woman named Catherine Caperton, executive producer of POTUS, who has been at the helm of this show for all 159 episodes. And I, I've said it to her numerous times and to many people, but I'll say it on the air now. The love and uh, care that she's taken to this show each week when Adam and myself and then eventually you and Jeff and Steve joining in saying the way to really uh, convey imagery, stagecraft, and talking about politics in a different way is to let interesting people come on, give them plenty of time to talk in a way you never get on TV or even on mainstream radio. Give them minutes, half hour and all, and meld it with these sounds that if they can't actually paint pictures, they can invoke images. And Catherine was the maestro of helping us do that. So Catherine, my friend, thank you so much. You're welcome, Josh. But really, this was such an easy job for me because it was so much fun. And uh, I always thought that the show from week to week got better and better. And so did you. And I've enjoyed listening and I've enjoyed producing it. So, uh, Matt, it seems like this is a, a lead in to our listeners of some uh, announcement of some moment. Indeed, it does. So why don't you go with it? Well, uh, as we've Related, uh, we've been at this for three and a half years for 159 episodes. And, and um, uh, it started with Adam and me, and then Adam went off to work on the Romney campaign, and then I carried it alone, and then uh, joined by uh, Matt Bennett, Jeff Smith, and Steve Silverman, always with Catherine at the helm. And what listeners probably don't know, because we never made a big deal about it, was that none of us have ever been paid a dime for this work. Uh, we do it because we really enjoy it. Uh, we carry on our own separate lives. Matt is the founder of Third Way, one of Washington's leading think tanks. Uh, Steve is a corporate communications and PR expert, former Clinton administration official. Jeff Smith was a Missouri state senator, ran for Congress, got caught up in violation of uh, campaign finance laws and went to jail for a year uh, for... Uh, coordination of a uh, outside expenditure group, which he really did sort of absent-mindedly, and then now he's a professor at the New School. So we all have lived these lives in politics, and we're trying to bring these stories and and interesting guests to our listeners. But you know, we've lived other lives. So four and a half days a week, uh, maybe and more. I'm working at a different job in in public relations and. Catherine and I are emailing a little bit early in the week saying, well, who should we have as a guest? And we start to have a cue and we know who we're going to have. And then we think about a little bit of audio that goes with it. And then Thursday afternoon at three, we're taping a show. But Matt and Catherine, you know, things change. Uh, I get a new job, a job that is requiring a lot of my time. And I'm a father of uh, two young kids, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. And I also, uh, after long uh, thinking about it, have uh, you know sold a book to Palgrave Macmillan, tentatively entitled uh, "Best Laid Plans: The Perils of Producing the Presidential Image in the Age of Optics." 
So when you have when you realize what your first priority is, your day job, and what you can time the time you can eke out as a hobby, maybe either hosting a show or writing a book, and then your duties and love of being a dad and a husband, you know something's got to give there. And so we thought about whether we could keep going forward with maybe me doing one show a month and you and Steve and Jeff each doing a show a month. But, you know, I get what the pushback is on that, that shows are often designed and promoted around single host talent that people expect to hear from week in, week out. And uh, I think, and I also know that there's a huge uh, strain on producing resources. We can't command as much time of Catherine's as we have in the past. Uh, and that we are just a humble, uh, amateur produced weekend, amateur talented anyway, weekend show. And, uh, POTUS has to put its best foot forward for what it's going to do Monday through Friday. And so, uh, we are going to go on hiatus, Matt and, uh, Catherine for an undetermined amount of time. Hope it's not terribly long. It could be forever. Uh, but I need to write this book and deliver it. Uh, in May so that it can be the talk of the town during the 2016 election cycle. I'm so excited about that chance to really convey in words uh, what I've been thinking about practicing during the Clinton years, even a little bit of Obama years, and and trying to describe the the theater of politics so long. And uh, I'm after 159 shows and three and a half years of doing this, at least one year of thinking about writing and and enshrining it in paper between uh, hardcover will be uh, the extra passion and hobby uh, beyond work and being a dad for the next year. Well, it's been a real honor to be one of your guest hosts, Josh. This is a fantastic show. You have much to be proud of. Uh, as you point out, Catherine has been an incredible partner to you in, in putting this show on the air. And uh, you'll be missed by your listeners and your guests and your and your guest host. Thanks, Matt. Uh, thank you uh, in absentia to Steve and Jeff. And I don't know, Catherine, this started a long time ago. I think about some of those, uh, you know, crazy weeks when we were scrambling for guests and figuring out what we were going to do. But we certainly have developed a good rhythm together. I think so, too, Josh. And I I hope that when you, after your book comes out and you're on your book tour and um, you're granting people interviews, that they give you just an ounce of what you give the people that you interview. Um, I've always just loved to listen to you conduct interviews and how in-depth you go and how much it shows that you have cared about the interview that you're doing and cared about researching and reading what these people are putting out. So I hope people return that favor to you. I, I hope so, too. I hope there are outlets like Polyoptics when people, where people actually get to talk. And, Matt, that's the beauty of it. And, Catherine, you know, I, I, I confess that I had stopped pushing myself to read a lot uh, before this show that I I hadn't really, you know, picked up Peter Baker's Days of Fire or Chris Matthews book about John F. Kennedy or Reagan and O'Neill or uh, Scott Berg's book on Woodrow Wilson. I mean, it looks great on a shelf, but man, it's a it's a lot to get through in a week. And then to think about how to engage a Scott Berg or Chris Matthews uh, or Doris Kearns Goodwin to talk for a long time. But it was, at the end of the day, Matt and Catherine, 
when you're reading a long-form news article or you're reading Michael Shear's pieces or you're reading a great book and then you get to let these authors and these writers and these uh, analysts and the people who've lived these political lives like we have uh, really talk about their experiences without a whole lot of interruption. And it's just been a wonderful uh, experience to be on this side of the microphone beside today largely keeping my mouth shut once I make the intro. Well, as I said, I'm certain you'll be missed by your listeners and and your many fans. And I, for one, who uh, was a partner of yours in uh, working in the optics of politics long ago, really look forward to your book. Thanks. I don't usually uh, ask listeners to keep in touch, but I I will want you to. uh, And I don't every week sort of say, you know, ping me. But uh, for anyone who listens to the show regularly, some of those who I hear from from time to time, some who I've never heard from, uh, I'll be uh, working on the book for the next year. And if you want to stay in touch, it's polyoptics at gmail.com. I'm Josh King, Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Thanks for listening. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. Life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may not